Welcome to a special Illumination by Modern Campus series, where we discuss how continuing education acts as an incubator for higher ed executives. Through this series, the Illumination podcast is speaking with presidents of colleges and universities across North America who got their start in continuing professional and online education. My name is Amr Dalawalia. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of The Evolution and host of The Illumination Podcast. In this episode, which is the fourth in our series, I'm joined by Greg Fowler, President of the University of Maryland Global Campus. We chat about the many ways that modern institutions can evolve to better serve the growing population of adult learners and reflect on how CE leaders can play an enhanced role in helping to modernize their own colleges and universities. Well, Greg, welcome to The Illumination Podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, you recently, uh, well, recently, last January, uh, started as the president of the University of Maryland Global Campus. Um, after about eight years at Southern New Hampshire, where you led uh, the online uh, continuing ed college, you've had a really interesting history in, in the post-secondary space. And, and so much of it has been oriented around creating access to high quality learning opportunities for, for non-traditional students. And I'm, I'm just so curious about, you know, what's driven your professional interest in, in serving that audience? Well, you know, it's funny. I um, have, you know, my own background is one that actually ties very much to that um, coming from um, a, a large family. Um, we were a middle-class African-American family. And as I uh, began to deal with my own education, elementary and secondary. I ended up at, um, being the only African-American kid in a lot of my classes, um, particularly once you started getting into the honors classes and gifted classes along the way. Um, but I would say the real, um, the real idea around that came probably either with my time at Morehouse, um, where I really began to understand um, how different voices had not been part of the larger conversation um, that um, certainly um, made a difference. But I think um, the other big point is my very first job out of college was with the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it was as an outreach specialist. Um, and that job was basically to make sure we dealt with underrepresented populations and make sure their voices were part of the larger mosaic of grants and other things that the federal government had in all of those areas. And I think that's really stuck with me, the, the stories that I heard from that period of time and trying to think of ways to make sure that, it, um, that their voices were part of the conversation moving forward. So how do you, I mean, how do you functionally do that work? Like, how do you, you know, there, because I think a lot of folks have the best of intentions in the post-secondary space. We all believe in access. We all believe in equity. Um, but then, you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's really about service change. It's about philosophy change. It's about culture change and enacting this different vision for what post-secondary education can be in a very practical way. Now, you've, you've had a history of doing that. So I'm just curious, I mean, how, what are some of the steps that a leader can take to ensure that they're actually executing on that philosophy in the management of a very traditional organization? You know, I, I think this uh, one statement that I've used my whole life, I, I often credit to my mom, it may have been some other people as well who said this to me, um, but it's, you, God gave you two ears, two eyes, and one mouth for a reason. Um, and that's really driven a lot of what I would say, both as a leader in an organization, but certainly when you're trying to do this work, the ability to stop talking or tr stop trying to convince people that what you have is good and listen to what they need um, and watch how they're responding to it 
are the critical skill sets that I think a lot of organizations don't necessarily do a good job of. One of the things when we're talking about the work we are talking about is um, getting much more understanding of user experience um, mm -hmm. and the user stories and starting from that perspective and then trying to build the experiences that are going to be most effective is one of the things I think we all have to get better at. So that's what I've really applied across the board, whether it was learning resources or learning experiences or other things was to try to have an understanding of um, meeting people where they are. It's more than just a platitude and saying, um, how do you make that work? Absolutely. You know, one thing I, I'm curious about as well, because you you served as, as the commissioner for New England's regional accreditor at the same time as you were, um, I guess, a president of the global campus at Southern New Hampshire. Um, you were president, I think it was called the, the College for Online and Continuing Ed before that. Yep. So on the one hand, you're a board member for, for an accreditation board, which, you know, I think in, across the higher ed space, we have a perception of accreditors as being, you know, relatively um, traditional oriented towards maintaining quality standards and, and rigor, which can be slow to evolve, while at the same time leading the most innovative part of one of the most innovative post-secondary institutions in the world. How do you consolidate those two identities as you're sort of acting in both roles simultaneously? You know, the beauty of the New England Commission, and um, so there are um, six major regional um, accreditors, um, and mm -hmm. um, I would say they each have their own personality. Um, uh, it's built a little bit around who their institutional makeup comes from, but it's also mm -hmm. built around an understanding of there are various ways to do quality. And of course, in New England, if you're talking about the institutions there, you're talking certainly about the, the Ivy Leagues. Um, I mean, Harvard would say we are the starters of accreditation. Um, you've got <laughs> Yale, Brown, Dartmouth, um, all of these schools that um, really um, have sort of set one a standard. But at the other end of it, you've also got a lot of schools whose mission is much more accessibility, affordability, community colleges, some of the traditional liberal arts colleges. And for the commission being able to say, we are going to create standards, um, but we are also going to recognize that there are many different ways to meet those standards um, and allowing the institutions to tell their story. It's one of the things we said all the time was really, you tell us how you meet the standards of the mission. We will give you our feedback on it um, and give you our observations, but this is not a prescriptive uh, process in the um, New England region. So it was definitely an eye-opening thing to be able to sit there and listen to all of these various schools of different types come along. But it also gave me a, a great appreciation for all of the various roles higher education plays mm -hmm. um, in the lives of people. And um, I, I've said over and over again, you know, there is no one higher education. We need the research institutions, but we also need the institutions that are instructional. We need the HBCUs. Um, we need all of these various schools to do their part in helping to bring, bring new skills and abilities to various populations. I mean, it's, it, that's a, it's a fascinating perspective because you're right. I and mean, different institutions are designed to serve different audiences. And I think, you know, as we came into maybe the 2010s, there was a recognition that a one-size-fits-all model isn't necessarily the best approach. Everyone shouldn't be trying to replicate Harvard. We've seen that critique come up time and time again. Every time the, the U.S. News and World Report rankings come out, that's the conversation that immediately follows it is, you know, should we actually be paying attention to a ranking mechanism that takes reputation and exclusivity as, as positives? Um, right. So, but I'm curious, I mean, how do you... As an innovator, 
how do you gauge the value of different kinds of innovations or different kinds of transformations, but while still maintaining the purpose, the mission, the values of the institution you're at? Like, how do you, how do you strike a balance between what everyone thinks is good and then what's actually important for your learners? Well, I certainly think you got to have that sort of standard by which you're operating always. And we often say here that I, I always tell people, I want you to figure out how to help our students meet their goals mm. without ever sacrificing academic quality. I mean, I, mean the, I often operate with these sort of four A's that I've talked about from day one, which are affordability, accessibility, academic quality, and accountability. Uh, we ultimately have to be responsible for the things we're trying to put out there in the workforce. So all of those things work together um, mm -hmm. to try to make sure we, we do the right thing. So when it comes to the experiences, um, you, you've probably heard me say um, several times, my examples may be things like the Karate Kid, the movie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I talk about there are different ways to get to the same destination. Um, the destination may be the same, um, but in many ways, trying to figure out how do I give you the skills that you need and or how do I address the things that you um, are going to need? It's funny because the more I've thought about this over the years, um, one of the things when I was at Western Governors that really became quite apparent to me was we don't always know where learning happens. We just think we do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you're a professor, you think the student's sitting in my class, clearly I'm the person who's teaching them. But then I often thought about the times when I was a professor that, you know, you had students who were doing study groups, you had students who were doing alternative learning resources. Um, and so those things can be equally valid as far as the learning ecosystem goes. And what I want to make sure we do is still say, in the end, the assessment has to be valid yes. um, and, and make sure that we don't lower the bar on those types of things. But we also have to allow for the various ways that people are going to ingest information and process it and then apply it um, as they're moving forward that we don't always give credit for. You know, it's, it's fascinating you bring that up because that's, I mean, as I think more and more about the 60-year curriculum model, and it's something that you know, that we're writing chapters on and things like that is it's that idea of the, the role of the institution itself is evolving as opposed to being a gatekeeper of knowledge, which it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, the, the role of the institution within a 60-year curriculum model evolves into one where it's a partner in an individual's learning. Whether that learning is, it comes from you know, faculty developed original programming from the institution itself, whether the learning comes from outside. And then as the partner, the role is really more in contextualizing and assessing knowledge as opposed to delivering it. So as that model starts to take hold, I mean, how does how does the role of the institution shift? Like how can how can universities start to position themselves to play that sort of dual dual uh, effort of on the one hand, making sure that students who are looking for access to information have it but that others who might be coming in looking for you know, credit for prior learning, who might be coming in looking for a pathway to, to a career outcome still have that pathway accessible to them. You know, I thought, again, I refer back to my early days at Western Governors for this one, because that was, and I do that because that was where I really became exposed to competency-based education. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to really think about, in the end, what most of us do is actually certify learning. Yeah. Um, through an assessment. We give a credential, um, but that, again, I go back to what I said a minute ago, that doesn't mean that the learning happened in the ways that we thought it did. In fact, one of the things about WGU during those early years was very much around the assessment 
um, has to be a, a, a very strong ballot secure um, thing. But we, there are many different learning resources that we made available to students. And in many cases said, you know, if you already know these types of things and you can actually uh, succeed on the assessment, you can keep moving. So if you've had a business for 50 years and you're trying to um, come in and, you know, get through business management principles, you should be able to accelerate through those types of things. So I think in the end, that's always been true for institutions, um, that the, the, the bottom line is we do very well at being able to say, I don't know where you learned it, but you passed the test or you demonstrated the skill set. And I think that's one of those sort of self-reflective moments that institutions really have to um, take a step back and go, um, is this really a change? Is this really a change in the way we see ourselves um, as we continue to move forward? Because there is a lot of discussion around, is this instructor actually teaching, um, which may be a different conversation than is this student actually learning yeah. and how? So I, that, that's a, a fascinating conversation that gets into a whole lot of um, different um, waters, some of which could be a little bit treacherous um, if you aren't, aren't able to have that conversation with people because we all like to think it, it was me. But mm -hmm. for a large number of our students, what we begin to hear is that they learn from many different sources in ways that we didn't always anticipate. Absolutely. I mean. There are so many different pathways to an outcome. I, I'm curious, and I, I do want to bring us back to the, the theme of, of the series that we're currently in, which is the idea of, you know, continuing education as, as this leadership incubator. And there are so many folks who've come out of the CE world and, and stepped into uh, executive roles, into presidencies in the last few years. This series, we're highlighting just a few, um, you know, with yourself, uh, Kathy Sandine at, uh, at Cal State East Bay, uh, Carlos Cortez at San Diego College District, Brad Mahon at Great Plains, um, David Scable at, at Excelsior is another. What is it about the continuing ed, the online ed sector that builds this skill set for future institutional leaders? Um, I, I think it um, allows you to think outside of the box. Um, and for people who have always been willing to take a different look at things um, or different ways um, to you know, learn things, it allows you to challenge the status quo and then do something about it. So um, that, that work when it comes to innovation um, really does require people to uh, move a little bit outside of those comfort zones. And most of the leaders that I find to be successful in this space right now still have a good understanding of what are the non-negotiables, but they also build into that, okay, and what are the ways that we can actually think differently about the other things that we are trying to do? If I were trying to give, um, you know, my observation on it, the, the, the leaders that have impressed me the most were the ones who were either willing to challenge their own assumptions or certainly let other people do so in such a way that things could actually move forward. There, there is that, that productive tension is something that I think you've got to be comfortable with if you're going to try to do these types of things, particularly in this environment. Absolutely. I'm curious about, you know, because one of the things that keeps coming up about continuing ed is that there's a necessity to partner. Whereas in other other divisions don't necessarily have the same responsibility to form partnerships across the institution. And, you know, with the context of where the modern institution is, that ability to form partnerships, that ability to build collaborative relationships is critical. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you've got to be able to, um, and I think this is becoming more and more clear to various types of institutions because it's not all about the academic experience or the other things, but it's a sort of, it's a, it's a surrounding of the student with the various services that they need in a way that helps them to be successful. 
Um, that most of the students who we run into who are not being successful, it isn't because they can't get the content. Um, it really is because life happens. And when life happens, they've either got to cope with these non-academic issues or those non-academic issues impact the ways they're going to need academic support. Um, and being able to do that um, and help students see that it is something that I think more institutions are trying to get an understanding for. You, you've heard, of course, this 40 million, some college, no degree um, conversation. Well, why aren't those students being successful um, across the board are things that we are starting to have more people ask questions about. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we've got to be better at being um, ready to say we want to help those students um, move forward. So I, that's really, I think, the big challenge as we try to take this conversation forward. You know, I, I actually, I want to follow up on that because it's, it's really, really interesting topic. And one of the things I'm curious about, right, when now, you, you know, University of Maryland Global, Western Governors, Southern New Hampshire to an extent, um, these are institutions that have historically served adults, created access to, to degree pathways for, for adult learners. Um, Charter Oak is in that conversation. There, there are so many. But as the, the nature, the demographic of the post-secondary space shifts, I think, you know, across the board, we're seeing more and more colleges and universities finding ways to serve non-traditional learners, creating pathways for adult learners. How does an institution like University of Maryland Global maintain its, its sort of differentiation when the entire market starts to evolve into one where adults are, are being served very consciously and actively? Well, I think that's certainly true, but I think a lot of higher education institutions um, will go only so far in that conversation currently. Um, so some of the places where we are exploring, and um, these are partnerships with community organizations, uh, partnerships um, in overseas spaces, partnerships with businesses that may be dealing with different types of experiences, some being short-term credentials, some being you know, uh, prior learning assessment, um, these are all places where an agile or flexible institution like UMGC can continue to innovate and, mm -hmm. and come into the space in a way that a lot of other institutions would be more challenged to do so. So a lot of the conversations that we are having are centered around those things, as well as one of the big uh, joys of this institution is that it's got 200 or so locations around the globe um, and being able to create, learn from those things when it comes to uh, mobile learning, uh, students who are going to stop in, st step in and step out based upon, you know, military deployments, um, dealing with different cultures around the world are all things that give us um, an ability to remain competitive in that space because we can take all of that and incorporate it into our experiences in a world that's becoming more and more dynamic. I mean, certainly we're talking demographic wise, but also that ability to reach um, students anywhere in the country is something that I think does give us um, so, so a leg up over some of the other competition. Well, and to your point, like, I think it's, it is fascinating the way we're seeing higher ed evolve. I mean, it's no longer, it's not a regional game at all. It really right. is a question of, you know, how can every institution ensure that it's, regardless of the audience it's serving, other opportunities for enrollment are statewide, national, global. So for post-secondary institutions that are trying to create pathways for, for, individuals within their service area. Um, I mean, how can leaders work to make that institutional experience more accessible to and more tailored for a non-traditional audience? Yeah, I think, you know, I was uh, working with a, um, a, I wouldn't call it a think tank, I would call it a, um, a working group a couple of years ago, the Sorensen Institute um, had 
partnered with Gates, and we were dealing with this conversation around education deserts. And, you know, these places yeah. around the country where you can, there isn't even a community college um, within a 50-mile radius. So how do, how do these um, citizens find a way to get um, in education? And I think more and more as we're talking about things like bandwidth and other things, that these um, places like UMGC provide those opportunities. More and more, you're starting to see that. But you're also starting to see this in various populations across the country. Um, looking at um, some of the work that's going on with Da Vinci out in California with um, homeless yeah. kids or foster kids. Um, the, the work that you see happening in some of the inner cities or the work that's going on in Boston with a, a place like Duet. Um, all of these are places where you begin to see um, different approaches to helping those um, learners receive the education that they need. But again, it goes back to, does the institution have the ability to be flexible and agile enough to also maintain academic quality but re reach the students where they are, if that's what their mission is. Again, mm -hmm. I, I go back to there are different roles for higher education. Um, and if you're an R1, R2 school, and you're talking about those Carnegie classifications, uh, then that's fine. That's, that's absolutely critical to the higher education experience. For those who are dealing more with accessibility and affordability issues, being able to think outside of the box in those types of ways and um, learning from those types of experiences is going to be an important part. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, that is it's a philosophy that's so core to the work that continuing ed tends to do. I'm curious, you know, as you think about your own career trajectory and, and your pathway, what advice would you share with other continuing ed leaders that might be looking to make more of an impact at their institution or expand the, 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 expand the reach of their own departments within the institutional mission? Well, I would always go back to what I said a minute ago. Uh, don't be afraid to challenge yourself and uh, create a culture where others around you um, can both challenge you and also challenge the other people who are in the room. Because a lot of the work that you see happening right now is in a very dynamic, innovative phase. It's, it's A lot of this work is tied to people trying different things and trying to see what happens. And I would also say, create a network of people who you can work with and collaborate with um, so that the learnings go further than just what's happening within your institution. My, my mom used to say to me, um, I, you know, I've got four brothers and they're all substantially older than me. And she said, um, you know, if you pay a close, if you pay close attention, you can learn from their mistakes. You'll still make your own, but you don't have to repeat theirs. And I think um, that ability in higher education um, being able to hear and understand and learn from each other um, is one of the both the blessings that I find um, almost unique in higher education, um, but also gives you opportunities to learn things you otherwise might not um, as you're trying to move forward. So keep those networks um, uh, in operation and they can help you serve well. Absolutely. Well, uh, Greg, I, I so appreciate you taking the time out to, to join me in the podcast today. Just in closing, uh, one of the things that we like to end our podcast with is a very, very simple question, which is uh, in, I guess you're in Adelphi, Maryland, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the entire sort of Northern DC area. Where's your favorite place to go to dinner? Um, oh, we'll see. I'm a huge barbecue fan. Um, I'm a, the, the Southern in me um, never uh, ceases to uh, find a good barbecue place. And there's a place called 250 Texas um, that's here in um, Maryland. They just opened up one in um, DC as well. And Everybody who I take there is just amazed at the barbecue. I often buy it for the team here um, when we're having a hard day because it's like a, a little smoked barbecue or brisket goes a long way. Yeah, fair enough. Let me let me ask you something, which is, you know, I've seen a Baltimore barbecue pit sandwich. What is that? I honestly don't know because I haven't okay. had a barbecue. <laughs> 
So those, um, yeah, that, I have to go find, I spend some time in Baltimore. Next time I'll go up there, I'll have to look it up. I will say that when I moved from Southern New Hampshire, um, I was sad about having to give up. I, I was on a quest to find the world's perfect lobster roll. Um, hmm. and, um, and I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be moving to Baltimore, but Hey, the crab cakes down here are pretty good. So uh, you, you trade one for the other. I'm actually <laughs> feel pretty happy. Yeah. It's not a horrible trade-off. Greg, it's been a pleasure, man. Hey, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.